Amen. There is so much in that passage that Will just read that we're not even going to look at that today. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. But as he read, we, we know that we have received Christ, and as we have received Christ, we must walk in Him. And so today we'll look at Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to be in part 4 of this series that we've been looking at called The Spirit-Filled Life. The Spirit-Filled Life, and today we'll focus in on verses 24 through 26 as we kind of close out this section. Uh, This is a monumental portion of Scripture where we are instructed to walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So let's read our text. We'll back up to verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter, and then we will go before the Lord in prayer And then we'll kind of reset this context and kind of grab this whole section in one swoop and focus in on verses 24 through 26. So let's read Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. This is the word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit... And the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now let's go to his throne of grace with prayer. Father, we come to you as we do each and every week by your design and by your grace and according to your plan. And we come to you and acknowledge that this is our great hour of need. Lord, for it is a miracle for you to receive our worship because of the work of Christ. And it is a miracle for you to instruct our hearts and minds through the feeble communications of man. But Lord, that is exactly what you have instructed us to do through your word, to give attention to the reading of Scripture and to preach the word in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and correct all with great patience and instruction. 
So, Lord, we come before you now asking you to accomplish that work. For it's not a work that's accomplished through a man or through the efforts or the wisdom or the ideas of men, but it's a work that is accomplished by the power of your Spirit working in us. Lord, please put away all distractions, all of the cares and concerns of this world that would take our focus and our devotion away from you in this time. Grant us to give plain and clear and sincere devotion to you. Lord, would you form Christ in us through the word? We know that that was one of Paul's great desires in this epistle was to see Christ formed in the people who belong to Christ. So would you form Christ in us through your word by the working of your Holy Spirit? Would you, Lord, show us our sin? Would you break us? Lord, would you please bring us to repentance? Would you help us to make progress in sanctification, in true, genuine, personal holiness? Lord, we know that we are complete and called holy and given positional holiness in Christ. But we also know that you command us to be holy just as you who have called us out of darkness into light are holy. So, Lord, do that work in us today. Make us holy. Cause us to see and savor and serve Christ. Lord, what a blessed privilege it is to gather each week to worship with your people. May all that we do bring honor and glory to your name and your name alone. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So again, we want to reset the stage a little bit. This, this is such a glorious passage of Scripture that there's no way we could get to the end of it and just jump in at verse 24 and go through verse 26 and call it done. So let's think back over the last few weeks. We spent three Sundays looking at this passage. We have seen that Paul gives a command in verse 26, walk by the Spirit. He tells about a conflict in verses 17 and 18, the conflict between the Holy Spirit who lives in believers and the remaining flesh that must be and ultimately will be defeated in believers. In verses 19 through 23, he told us of the contrast of the life of those who walk by the Spirit, who display the fruit of the Spirit against those who Walk according to the flesh, in whom the deeds of the flesh are evident. Not just present, but are evident. So again, we must understand the guiding principle of this entire section. The command that Paul gives in verse 16, to walk by the Spirit. The Christian life is described and illustrated by that idea of a walk. It is that we make progress, that we continue to move forward in this work of God called sanctification. We're made over the course of our lives to be more and more like Christ. This is not optional. To be conformed to Christ is not an option. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that you will know a tree by its fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears diseased, bad, unhealthy fruit. Simply stated, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. That term is an oxymoron. You cannot be carnal and be in Christ. Because you are dead to the flesh when you are alive in Christ. Now, a follower of Christ might experience a brief season of sin, a, a period of life where they do not walk with the Lord and are given over to more sins than they certainly should be or is even reasonable for them to be given over to. But there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. The sure mark of one who is in Christ is that they walk in and are controlled by the Holy Spirit. That is the mark of true believers. So why such an emphasis on this point, on this command? Well, verse 17 and 18, the conflict that your flesh, even once you are born again into Christ, your flesh remains at war with the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in you. Just as the Christian life is described as being a walk, it's also described as being a war, a war in which you must constantly battle against the flesh. It is a war between good and evil, a war between right and and wrong. It is a war between the Holy Spirit in you and the power of this world who is Satan, who is and will be ultimately defeated by Christ. We ought to hear that with hopefulness, but also with sober-mindedness. We know that in all things, ultimately, we are conquerors in Christ. We over come. We will conquer in Christ. So you hear about this conflict, and you can look out at the world around you and the rest of your life and say, I will win this battle because of Christ in me. So hear this conflict with hope, but also hear it with a sober mind. You hear it with a sober mind because there is a war, and that war means and necessitates that you walk by the Spirit in every single moment. If you try to walk the Christian life in your own strength, you will fail, and you will fail utterly. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says that pride goes before destruction. That is what it is to live the Christian life by your own strength. It is pride, and it will lead to destruction. Proverbs 18, verse 12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. It is the most humble thing we can do to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit as we strive to live the Christian life. So the Christian life is this momentary dependence upon the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit and we make war against the flesh and that walking in the Spirit and making war against the flesh leads us to this great contrast of verses 19 through 23, the contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we spend a significant amount of time, two and a half weeks, looking at this contrast because this contrast, the winning of this war, is the evidence that you can see, that you can know that you are in Christ. Now, that does not mean that we depend on our flesh. That does not mean that we depend on good works for salvation. 
But what it does mean, and as Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, is that he is the vine, that we are the branches, that if we abide in him and he abides in us, we will bear fruit. In that section, Jesus went on to tell his disciples, these things I tell you so that your joy may be in me and that your joy may be made complete. You have complete joy when you bear fruit in Christ by the power of the Spirit because you have assurance that you are in Christ. That's why this contrast is so important because if you don't walk properly, if you don't see this contrast, you have no reason to have assurance in Christ. Because you are given over to your sin and not walking by the Spirit. So we must put no confidence in the flesh. But we recognize glorious, transforming power at work in us through His Spirit. And our lives give evidence to genuine, lasting, permanent obedience. We do not rely on a past decision to have assurance of faith. The reason that we can have assurance of faith is because you have faith today and your life gives evidence that the Spirit of God lives within you. This is why the contrast is important. So that kind of sets the stage. Again, we set out looking at this really under five total headings. That's the first three, the command, the conflict, in the contrast, and today we'll look at the fourth and the fifth headings. So fourthly, overall, we want to consider the conquest. The conquest, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now the term conquest here was chosen with, um, with great specificity. Conquest is defined as the act or process of conquering. And as we look at verse 24, we see the act and the process of conquering from two sides of the coin. The act and process of Christ conquering sin for us and making us conquerors in that we belong to him. And we see the act and process of us conquering in that we crucify the flesh and its passions and desires. So let's dig in there and consider the conquest. Paul begins by saying that those who belong to Christ Jesus. Stop right there. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. That can literally be translated that those who are of Christ Jesus. Those who have life in Christ Jesus. Those who, as Paul says, belong to Jesus. Those who were purchased by his blood, who have their hope fully in him, those who are empowered by him, this then is how they live. Now you remember back to Galatians 5.13, Paul said, you were called to freedom, brethren. So you were called to freedom, but now you belong to Christ. You are free from the power of sin because you were purchased by Christ. You belong to him you are his. You are not free to live as you please, but you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ because you were purchased by his blood. So let's consider that, that, that we were purchased by Christ, that we are his possession. As we saw in Psalm 95 last week, that we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we see that we were purchased with precious blood. Not the trivial and perishable things of this world like gold and silver, but with the blood of the spotless and unblemished lamb. You were purchased with precious blood, the precious blood of Christ. Christ paid the ultimate price for your ransom to redeem you from the power and the penalty of your sins. You belong to Christ because he paid the ultimate price. You also belong to Christ because he did the work fully and completely. Consider John chapter 19, verse 30. What does Jesus cry there while he is hanging nailed to the cross? Jesus says, it is finished. The price is paid in full. The work is complete. You belong to Christ because there was nothing left for the Son of God to do. He took your punishment and he credits his righteousness to your account. You belong to Christ. And we know that this payment was received and accepted because Christ died on that cross and he did not remain in the grave. We know that the Father accepted the payment from the Son because Jesus was risen from the dead. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the end of that long chapter. We see this idea that the mortal will put on immortality because death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you belong to Christ because he has paid the ultimate price. He has shed his blood on the cross for your sins. He cried out, as God himself, that it is finished. The work is done, and he proved that it was finished because he rose victoriously over the grave. He rose from the dead, and we know that his work is complete. So you belong to Christ. Not only are we bought by Christ, and and not only did he pay that price in full, but Scripture tells us how and why we belong to him. The Father gives the church, us, the saints, to the Son to be a people for his own possession, to be his bride, to be his reward for the work of redemption that he completed. Consider Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus gave himself to redeem you so that you would be a people for his possession. Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus gave himself up for the church so that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. Having no spot, she has no wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ redeemed you. He purchased you with his blood so he could give you to himself to be his holy bride. 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and to his marvelous light. Dear friends, we belong to Christ. We are his people. We are his possession. We are his bride. And all these things are true. The, the Lord did all these things, gave us to Christ so that we might make known his glory. We are redeemed, called out of darkness, so that we might proclaim his excellencies, his glories, his goodness, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is the first part. Really, this is the primary part of our conquest. As we consider the Spirit-filled life, we consider that that our conquest finds its greatest root, its greatest fulfillment in the fact that we belong to Christ. We're his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. He is the good shepherd. The Father has given us to him, and no one is able to snatch us out of Jesus' hand. But Jesus said, my Father who has given you to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. Friend, you belong to Christ. I cannot emphasize that enough. What a great hope. What a great reminder. What a great, a great thing to push us forward in the Spirit-filled life to know that we are Christ's people and no one and nothing can change that. But as I said, there's another side to this coin as we consider the conquest, the the act or the process of conquering something. We know that the victory is won because we are in Christ, but what is our part in this? The Scriptures are clear that we do have a part in this. Verse 24 of Galatians 5 is clear that we have a part in this. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have crucified the the flesh. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says that he has been crucified with Christ. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me, Christ Jesus who lives through me, because I've been crucified with Christ. Galatians 6.14, he says, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of Christ Jesus our Lord, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I too the world. May we never boast except for in the cross of Christ because it is through the cross of Christ that the world is crucified to us. Romans chapter 6, a a glorious chapter there in the middle of that glorious letter of Paul. Romans 6 verse 6, Paul says that the old self was crucified with him. The old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. You say, what does it mean that the body of sin was done away with? Consider Romans 8.13. Paul said, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. If you live according to the flesh, you have not put the body of flesh to death. You must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, Paul says, you will die live. So those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and its desires. Our conquest as we try to walk in the Spirit, as we walk by the Spirit, by God's grace, the conquest is that we crucify the flesh, that we crucify the passions and desires of our flesh that are opposed to what life in the Spirit should look like. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. How do you abstain from the fleshly lust which wage war against your soul? You crucify those desires. You put them to death. How do you put them to death? You go to the Lord's throne of grace and you ask and you beg and you plead for help with your sin. You ask the Lord to take away the desires of your flesh. You fill your mind with the truth of God's word and you let the spirit by the truth of the word fill you with desires for what is pure, what is honorable, what is right, what is just, and what is holy. You crucify the flesh by filling your mind with the truth and walking according to the power of the Holy Spirit. The idea of the crucified flesh speaks to the mortification of sin, something that John Owen wrote about extensively and beautifully. We understand the idea of crucifixion to be something that leads to an ultimate death, And Owen would point out that as we crucify the flesh, it is a never-ending crucifixion. You crucify the flesh today, tomorrow, the day after, next week, next year, and every day, every moment until the Lord calls you home. You must always be putting to death the flesh. And Praise be to God who gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of crucifying the flesh must find its empowerment in the cross of Christ. If you seek to crucify the flesh in your own strength without looking to Christ, without filling your mind with the glories and the laws and the standards and the morality that Christ displayed and shows us in Scripture, you will fail. The empowerment of crucifying the flesh is looking to the cross. Calvin would write about this, that the flesh is not yet indeed entirely destroyed. But, Calvin says, it has no right to exercise dominion. And it must, it ought to submit to the Spirit. Because you belong to Christ. Christ has put His Spirit within you. You still battle the flesh. It is still there. It still remains. But it does not have power. It does not have authority. So let us know then as believers that we walk by the Spirit by waging war against sin and against the flesh. But this victory is already won. This victory is won because Christ did say at the cross, it is finished. The price is paid. The blood of Christ is enough. We belong to Him. We are empowered by Him. We live for Him, for His glory. We are kept by Him, and we must therefore strive and labor to honor and obey Him. 
We strive to honor and obey him, as Paul would say in Colossians 1.29, in the strength and the awesome power of God that works mightily in us. We work, we strive, we labor, but it's the power of God according to the grace of God because of the finished work of Christ. This, friends, is our conquest, our conquest. Now, finally, there's a fifth heading in this section. Uh, It's a new paragraph, verses 25 and 26, and we'll look at this under the heading of the companionship. Uh, As we walk by the Spirit, we see that there's a great need to walk together in, in oneness, in unity, as we strive to walk by the Spirit. Verse 25 If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. Now, these verses, they they stand as a paragraph of their own. And a lot of times in Scripture, when you see a a short paragraph like this, just a couple verses, it's kind of a transition. It'll serve to tie in what has come before it with what is coming after it. Chapter 6 of Galatians talks a lot about how we relate to one another. Obviously, what we've just looked at talks about walking in the Spirit. So what we see here is the tie-in of walking in the Spirit and how we relate to one another. That's the title of this heading, The Companionship, because there is a companionship, a a fellowship when we walk in the Spirit. Now, as we look at this, um, a close examination of verse 26 shows us what may be one of the greatest dangers facing believers. One of the greatest dangers that faces those who walk in Christ, even those who are walking by the Spirit. Because what we see here are sins that are ultimately rooted in love of self. Things like ambition, envy, provoking one another. These sins are are rooted in that deepest sin of pride and self-love. So we must be on guard against these things. We must take a close look at this, understand what Paul is really getting at, and then we must be on guard. We must walk by the Spirit so we do not walk in these things. So there's really three, three um, kind of sub-points to see in verse 26, three exhortations of things that we must avoid. And the first one that Paul lists is really the overarching exhortation. It kind of covers the other two come under this one where he says, let us not become boastful. Now, that's maybe not the greatest way to, to translate that term. It's the Greek word kenodoxia in its um, adjective form, kenodoxos, comes from the, the term kenos and doxa, which means vain glory. That's really the root of this idea of becoming boastful. It's vain glory. It's one who pursues and desires a vain glory and praise that comes from men. You say, how do we know that it comes from men? Well, because praise that comes from God can never be vain or useless. So, so this thing that we are to avoid must be a vain glory that comes from one man to another. Paul says, let us not become boastful. This is what Paul wrote of in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verse 3, he said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Empty conceit is the same word for boastful here, kenodoxos. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. There's your answer to this question of how do I not become boastful? You consider others more important than yourself. Calvin wrote of this, this is very sobering to hear in light of the the depth of study that we've done here in this passage in Galatians 5. Calvin wrote, of the many evils existing in the church, ambition, this idea, this boastfulness, ambition is the mother. Paul therefore directs us to guard against it, for the vain glory of which he speaks is nothing else than ambition, the desire for honor by which everyone desires to excel all others. Surely you hear how unchristian that would be, to desire to place yourself above all others. You see how it's completely contrary to Scripture, and if you desire to place yourself above all others as being the most important, the foremost in the room, you can see how that will lead you to a path of destruction. Because if that is your view of yourself and that which you pursue, you will live against and in opposition to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Contextually, remember what came right before this. We belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, how would you be right to seek your own glory? How might we serve Christ rightly while seeking prominence and honor above others. You belong to Christ. You seek only His glory. As Calvin said, this is the, one of the, the foremost sins in the church, the mother of all sins almost in the church. It causes strife and division and disunity because there are those who want to put themselves first. Now, one particular challenge I think that we face, and, and we have to... We need to handle this very carefully, is this idea that the world, I think, subtly but very acutely also kind of points us in this direction of selfish ambition, of becoming boastful. As believers, we are called to do everything that we do to the glory of the Lord. You should be excellent in everything you do. When you go to your place of employment, your goal should be to be the greatest, fill in the blank, whatever your, your job is, you should be the greatest in that. Not that you are brilliant or, or a, a great engineer or a great plumber or whatever work you're in, but that you work hard, that you work with a good and cheerful attitude, that you are a team player and you do everything you do to the glory and the honor of the Lord. But the danger in that, and and that goes outside of work. That can go into anything that we do. But the great danger in that is that the world's instruction on how we excel, how you do your best, is that you do your best, and then you make sure that your boss knows about it. I was talking with um, one of the brothers here a week or two ago about the idea of resumes and job interviews and just how awkward that can be because you want to make a clear impression of the skills that you have, the things that you've accomplished in your career, but you must do that without being boastful. You go to an interview, what, and they're going to ask you, what is, what is your greatest accomplishment in your career? Good night that I serve the Lord with gladness and joy. I don't, I don't know how to answer that because the world doesn't care about humility. 
The world tells you to elevate yourself, to, to make yourself look good, to steal the glory that belongs to the Lord. And so I bring that up because that is a mindset that we have to put to death outside of the church. But then we must also put it to death inside the church. There's no reason to have a rivalry among yourself and a fellow church member. That you want to be the best Sunday school teacher or the best coffee maker or the best evangelizer or the best floor sweeper or whatever. We should strive to do what we do to glorify the Lord. This is where we must be on guard. We must strive to do things excellently. But in that striving, you must strive to have a pure heart that desires God's glory and not your own, not the praise of men. Whoever seeks the praise and glory for men seeks to dethrone the Lord and steal that which only belongs to him. We deserve no praise. We deserve no honor. We deserve no glory. Only God deserves glory. Only God is awesome. Only God is worthy to be praised. So with that, with this idea of vainglory and ambition being the mother of all evils um, within the church, we kind of get an idea of where, where the roots are with these other things that Paul mentions in verse 26. Um, he firstly says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another. Now, challenging one another, it's an interesting term because it really speaks of provoking. It's a couple of Greek words that come together that speak of calling one to yourself with the idea to have a contest or a challenge with them. Think about this, I thought that there's a, a real clear picture in Scripture of this in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it, but the story of David and Goliath probably know where I'm going there now with this idea of challenging one another. In verses 8 through 10 of 1 Samuel 17, Goliath is standing there shouting defiantly to the army of Israel, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? He said, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. He said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. That is the idea of challenging one another. He stood up defiantly and said, send your best man out here and let's have a fight. Let's have a match to the death. That is what it means to challenge. It says, come out and let's have a contest. In Goliath's case, it was very clear. It was very open. It was very public. Let me also warn you that these things can be done very privately. They can be done with deceit in a scheming way where you do not readily see a challenge coming from another. Let me exhort you, do not do that to a brother or sister in Christ, and beware that that can happen. That is not a fruit of the Spirit. That does not happen by one who walks in the Spirit. We must not challenge one another. And the third term Paul uses here, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, and envying one another. 
Again, I think that term is, is pretty clear. It's pretty understood. It speaks of that spiteful jealousy that you have towards another. Vine's Dictionary would describe and define this term as the feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing the advantage or prosperity of others. So when you hear of that brother who gets a promotion of, at work and you think, man, I wish I could get a promotion like him, or man, I should have gotten that promotion over him. That feeling of seeing one that the Lord blesses and thinking, why do I not receive that exact same blessing? I, I walk with the Lord just like that person does. That spirit is divisive. That spirit causes strife and division among God's people. This is an unchristian and Christ-dishonoring type of attitude. It is sinful. Matthew Henry kind of summarizes verse 26 by saying that the glory which comes from men is a vain glory, which instead of being desirous of, we should be dead to. He continues that an undue regard to the approval and applause of men is one great ground of the unhappy strifes and contentions that exist among Christians. Such things are antithetical to the Christian walk. They are in opposition to and opposing the idea of walking by the Spirit and fulfilling the law of Christ. Those who walk by the Spirit do not fear men, and they do not desire the approval of men. They do not desire to be esteemed above others. To walk by the Spirit, rather, we must walk in union with one another. We must walk in fellowship with one another. We must walk in a spirit of humility and looking out for the best interest of brothers and sisters. That's really the tie-in to the rest of this section with verses 25 and 26. It's that if we walk by the Spirit, we walk in humility, and we do not do the things described in verse 26. We look for the sole interest of our brothers and sisters, the interest of their soul, their best interest, what is of eternal good to them. We don't just fulfill a temporal need without giving someone the gospel. We don't let a brother or sister slide with their sin without confronting it just because we don't want them to get aggravated with us. Say, it'll be better for them if I don't confront this. No. We confront sin lovingly and gently, looking out for the best interest of a brother or a sister. How do we do this? How, how, do we, how do we live in such a way that is of humble mind, that is not this type of boastful, conceited, ambitious, glory-seeking thing that we see that is so anti-biblical, so against the Christian life. How do we do that? I think Paul has instruction for us in Philippians chapter 1. We, we must echo his refrain in Philippians 1 verse 21. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. If you want to humbly love brothers and sisters, that must be the refrain of your life. To live is Christ. You must also fulfill his exhortation a few verses later in Philippians 1.27. He said, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If you want to walk in this way, strive to walk in unity with those who are in Christ. Strive to walk in fellowship and serving and promoting and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. If your desire is to be in unity with those who are the Lord's people, you will not have this selfishly ambitious spirit. So as we move to conclude, to to wrap up really this entire section, all the way back to verse 16, as we move to conclude, let's consider again where we began. You belong to Christ. You are in Him. You are His. He purchased you with His blood. And those who belong to Christ, Paul says, have crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. Dear friends, we must walk by the Spirit. We must walk in the power that the Spirit gives according to the truth of God's Word so that the Spirit can fill us and cause us to live lives that are pleasing and honoring and glorifying to Him. How we glorify the Lord is at stake in this. You will glorify the Lord one way or another. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you glorify Him by walking in obedience Or will you glorify him because on that last day you stand before the throne and you're told, depart from me, I never knew you, you who work lawlessness and iniquity. And then you glorify God by being a vessel of wrath, a vessel on which he pours out his wrath for all eternity. You will glorify God. You will glorify him in heaven by singing his praises and worshiping at his throne or you will glorify him by being the one on whom he exercises his wrath. And all of this is summed up in this idea that we walk by the Spirit. If you are in the Spirit, you will walk by the Spirit. And those who walk in the Spirit do not live according to the desires of the flesh. You belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. He is your master. He is your Lord. Live according to the commands of your master so that one day he is able to say to you, well done, good, faithful slave. Now enter to the joy and the rest of your master. Serve him. Walk with him. Walk by the Spirit so that you do not carry out the desires of the flesh. If you do that, you will glorify the Lord in how you live, and he will say that to you on that last day. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter to the joy of your master. Let's close in prayer.